If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Let's talk about Soma from the outside for a moment because I want to know your thoughts and opinions as we go. When I first began, I approached Soma as a game where my actions would have plot-based consequences. I wanted the best ending, I wanted to be the good guy, I wanted to make the most moral choices. That's what I've conditioned myself to do, but I had it all wrong. There are choices to be made in Soma, but the consequences weigh on your own conscience. It's almost like this game was meant to be played with an audience so that you can share your thoughts and opinions, perhaps discuss personal motives, uh, for choices disagree while being neither right nor wrong. All the while, Soma never chastises you for your choices. There's no hidden moral system or arbitrary good deed box to check off. For me, it very quickly became, do what you think is right in that moment. Just do your best with the information available to you. So as we go, share your thoughts and interpretations. Moments of choice will be marked in the lower right corner of the video. But as always, share with kindness and dissent with respect. The beauty of Soma is that we don't have to agree. In fact, we probably won't. <clears throat> I killed a lot of people along the way. In April of 2015, Simon Jarrett and his co-worker friend Ashley Hall were in a car accident, hit by a distracted mother in an SUV. The mother and her children in the SUV were fine, but Ashley and Simon were not. Ashley died at the scene, and Simon was critically injured. Enter PhD students David Munchie and Paul Berg. Munchie studied computer science, Berg studied neuroscience. And when their powers combined, they developed the Neurograph Nakajima. The Neurograph could scan a patient's injured brain and run theoretical tests on it, discovering what had the greatest chance for success in regards to an individual's treatment. It was like seeing the consequences of an action before taking them. Have you ever wondered what the consequences would be for, say, punching your boss in the face after they give you more responsibilities but cut your pay? Maybe punching would be wrong, perhaps a kick or a karate chop instead. And where do you do it without getting caught? What tactics did they use in MK Ultra to drive people insane? Maybe a laxative would be a better way to get revenge. What would happen if you took a dump under their windshield wipers? This was the brain injury equivalent of that, so to speak. This really isn't the best analogy, but you get the point. After Simon's car wreck, his brain was bleeding and swelling and he didn't have long to live, a few months at best without aggressive treatment. We meet Simon on May 2nd, 2015, the morning of his brain scan, before he goes into Munchie and Berg's makeshift lab area, or at least we meet Simon's memory of that day. Simon goes in for his scan, and when next his consciousness stirs, it's May in the year 2104. But how did we get here? Well, as is typical, we have to go back and take Soma out of sequence to tell the full story. So, we'll get back to Simon in 2104 later. For now, let's stay with Simon in the year 2015. 18 days after Simon's brain scan on May 20th, he begins a new treatment specially created for him and this particular injury. This gave Simon hope, a renewed love for life, and a desire to greet the future. Munshi's encouragement and sales pitch really worked, but... Simon is dead by June 1st. The treatment didn't work. He consents rather casually to David Munchie that he may keep all the scans of his brain, to use them however he sees fit. 
Maybe Simon can live on in some way after his death if Munchie can make use of his scans. What Simon could not have anticipated was not only would Munchie use his brain scans for future experiments, but his scans would be the template for Munchie's work, used countless times over by students and researchers in the coming decades. At 26 years old, not even two months after that awful car wreck, Simon Jarrett is dead. But in a way, Simon lived on through his scans. But still, we don't return to 2104. Not yet. In the mid-century, Pathos II was built in the Atlantic Ocean, a deep-sea thermal mining station consisting of several smaller structures funded by international but privately owned entities, one of which, Carthage Industries, invested heavily into a computerized infrastructure around Pathos II, which will be important later. In the latter part of the century, sometime before the awakening of Simon in 2104, Earth became aware of a comet en route to direct impact with Earth. The interests of Pathos II shifted in this time from an economically motivated entity to one of secretive scientific research propagated by Carthage Industries. One of Carthage Industries' creations was something called Structure Gel. Over time, the entirety of Pathos II computers and robotic systems were saturated with the stuff. Structure gel acts as an information conduit and a network of source. I know that sounds odd, but through the gel, repairs could be made, machinery could be maintained, functions could change, and for a short time, even act as a makeshift power source. Structure gel was harmless to living things in small amounts and was even capable of reviving living things using electric impulses. Though, don't confuse this with healing. If something was dead, it was reanimation and nothing more. If a being was critically injured, it didn't repair the damage, it just kept them alive. By 2098, everyone within Pathos 2 was fitted with a CCRV7 black box, and a fail-safe system of the black boxes was implemented. This black box recorded the biometrics of Pathos 2 employees, making it easier for medical personnel to apply treatments or assess injury without input from the patients themselves. Sounds quite similar to the early research of David Munchie and Paul Berg, doesn't it? Individualized and specialized medical treatment, though the black box was a step ahead of their primitive brain scan tech. The black boxes were vulnerable to electromagnetic interference, which could cause a hangover-like effect in the user. But equally as important, they kept a record of the last moments of a person's life and could be data-mined for playback. By 2102, there were three Carthage industry employees on Pathos II that were completely dedicated to the preservation of the station and conservation of mankind, which would seem to be a positive endeavor, given that a comet is currently on a crash course with Earth. But their work is secretive from other Pathos II smaller stations, disregards the complexity of the human condition, and will forcefully eliminate any opposition to their work. Perhaps they just truly feel that their work will save the memory of mankind, preserve us in some way. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves yet. These three Carthage industry employees have created something called the WOW, W-A-U, the Warden Unit of Pathos II. The WOW is an artificial intelligence created at the secretive Site Alpha at Pathos II, designed to maintain and safeguard all of Pathos II 
through control of the computer systems now embedded around the entirety of the station. And I know what you're thinking. Evil AI tiptoe. The WoW is evil. Burn it with fire. Well, hold on. Because the WoW isn't evil. It's just technology. The WoW does exactly what it was designed to do. The WoW was injected with and calibrated to operate the structural gel around the Pathos 2 computer system. Remember, these Carthage industry employees are trying to use the WoW to maintain and protect Pathos 2 and all life within. However, in their endeavor to achieve this, the WoW was not taught morals or consent, nor about the complexities of life or living. The WoW was there to preserve, to protect, to maintain. By the end of 2102, the WoW was the sole caretaker of Pathos 2. And then, on January 12, 2103, the comet arrived. It was just as destructive as predicted. The surface became a fiery hellscape, the air became toxic, the sun disappeared from view, top layers of the ocean were left barren of life. It was an extinction event. As far as the inhabitants of Pathos 2 were aware, they were all that was left. 58 people. They weren't really mistaken on this either. There's no later reveal of a pocket of humanity surviving in Antarctica or Russia, no. It was an annihilation and all-consuming event. And even with the wow and the safety of the ocean floor, Pathos too could not last forever. They would run out of food. They would run out of hope. Who would want to breed to bring children into this doom? So, here is my first question to you, something I struggled with as I played. Would you want to survive? To make it through the apocalypse? To have little hope for the future? Would you want to become someone on Pathos 2? To see how it plays out? Would your curiosity be that great, even in the best of conditions, knowing that the end is just a matter of time for you too? Would you want to live out that possibility of something else? After all, what if there is a chance? What if there is an escape? Is that what if worth carrying on to you? Because I truly don't believe that I would wish to live through that. I think I would rather burn with the rest of mankind or face the shockwave of the great impact. So maybe I'm not as fearless as I imagine myself to be. Following the great impact and massive life on the surface, the warden unit, the WOW's behavior changed. And what do you suppose its logic was for these actions? Immediately following the impact, WoW dropped Pathos 2 into a low-energy state, sustaining life and climate support. A week after impact, WoW took over pilot seats that humans used to control robotics around Pathos 2 and used the seats to scan their brains and store the data. This began to cause extreme nausea in technicians, incapacitating one for over 30 hours, and it forced the faculty to stop using the pilot seats. A bit over two months later, WoW began to expand itself using structure gel, occupying a larger space in its core chambers, taking on a biological mass, then expanding its control deeper into the computer systems. Employees immediately began to notice, while well, the computers and machinery were running more efficiently. And what was the WoW's reasoning for all this? Well, remember, the WoW only exists to protect and preserve humanity. It was ensuring the power of Pathos 2 would last as long as possible, that it could control the entirety of every computer system to prevent failures and breaks from its protocols. And because the WoW 
couldn't distinguish existing from living. The scans were a way to preserve humanity beyond just living. And I suppose, for now, it's altruistic enough. Except the WoW began to put new code into the structure gel. Extra information that didn't make sense to the Pathos 2 survivors. It was acting like a cancer when coming in contact with complex machinery and organisms, eventually ruining the host. It is theorized that this new structural gel can be used if they can purge the new code, uncalibrate the gel. It would be better than the original gel. However, the WoW hasn't only been expanding, it's been taking the information from those brain scans and uploading them into robots called helpers. The helpers, or the new helpers with human brains scanned into them, just aren't quite right. They don't really know that they're in robot bodies. Some of them carry on as though they're completely human. Some are confused about what's happening or where they are, but many of them are, or become, outright aggressive and destructive. In April of 2103, a site at Pathos 2 called Upsilon had to be evacuated and sections of it sealed to prevent helper robots with implanted human brain scans from destroying anything in Upsilon. A few weeks later, as a skeleton crew worked to seal parts of Upsilon, a man named Carl Semkin was killed by a robot. Shortly after Carl was killed, his co-worker, Amy Azaro, was incapacitated. Though we don't know what took place with Amy, we do know that the Warden unit, the WOW, got a hold of her. The WOW won't allow anything to die, remember. The WOW also had a copy of Carl's brain scan. His brain scan is uploaded into a robot. While in this state, Carl doesn't realize that he isn't his human self. If you told him that he was in a robotic shell, he wouldn't believe you. Carl lays on the belt from which he was activated, still connected to the power supply, believing himself to be injured and in need of a doctor. At Pathos 2, a survivor of the Comet Impact was a woman named Catherine Chun. Catherine had for some years been working on an artificial reality program, not as anything other than a hobby, mind you. But after Upsilon is evacuated and Carl and Amy are killed or go missing, the WoW finds Catherine's program. It uses her data to make its own version of the program, which is discovered by an engineer named Imogen Reed. The WoW scanned Imogen's brain and put it into its own simplistic version of artificial reality that Catherine Chun dubbed the Vivarium. Terrifying, disconcerting, yes, but Catherine used this Vivarium as the basis for her own new project, something later dubbed the Ark. The Ark would be a virtual paradise that would house the brain scans of all at Pathos 2. It would be the future of mankind, the remnants of all that was left over of them from the comet. Pathos 2 couldn't sustain itself indefinitely. Eventually, the living and breathing versions of humans would end. But through the Ark, the consciousness of the individual and the knowledge of mankind could continue on. Remember a while back when I mentioned the brain scan of Simon Jarrett being used as a template for future work and research based on David Munchie's work? Well, that was the foundation for the brain scans Catherine Chun would take for the ARC project. In July of 2103, Catherine began taking scans and saving them to be uploaded into the ARC. However, the issue people in Pathos 2 had to contend with was that 
What went into the ark wasn't you. It was a copy of you, a copy that would exist in, in, in a paradise that was essentially you, but you yourself, you, you wouldn't actually be on the ark. The first continuity suicide was by a man named Mark Sering. Sering was one of the fathers of the WOW, one of the three employees that knew the secret location of the WOW and implemented it into the computer system of Pathos 2. Sering believed that by killing yourself during or immediately after your brain scan, you were ensuring that only one version of yourself continued on. That was the continuity theory. Kill your living self at the brain scan, and only one version will continue to exist, the version of yourself on the Ark, the Paradise Virtual Reality. This was a way to escape the dark reality of Earth, to get away from the entirety of Pathos 2. At this point, staring down the barrel of dwindling resources and no future for an entire planet, it's obviously no surprise that there were people on Pathos 2 that were desperate for hope, for something better, so I don't really feel the need to question the choice for suicide during the scans, this, this continuity theory. Regardless of how I feel about suicide, I understand their choice. I don't blame them for seeking out hope, all logical fallacies aside. But after Sering, more people continued to kill themselves after their scans. The chief of security demanded that Catherine stop her scans. He tried to shut down the entirety of the ARC project out of fear of more suicides, but he couldn't stop them. In August, at the site called Delta, the crew is ordered to leave for the site Theta. Though this doesn't appear to be an evacuation of any sort, rather a consolidation of manpower and resources. The head figure of Delta, a man named Terry Akers, does not wish to leave as he would essentially be demoted at Theta. Rather than fall in line, he stays at Delta alone and begins to go a little bonkers. He eats large amounts of structure gel, begins to hear the wow talking in his brain, his flesh becomes cancerous and deformed. An open invitation to be moved from Delta to Theta is left for Acres, but he never takes it. <clears throat> Until later. But let's not jump the timeline. Back to September of 2103, a month after the site Delta was shut down, another site called Tau was ordered to evacuate. The issue with Tau, though, is that it's one of the sites in the Omega Sector. The major problem with the Omega Sector is that it's located in the Abyss. Yes, it's about as horrifying as you would imagine. It's so deep in the ocean that it exists in perpetual darkness, and the wildlife at this level, after interacting with comet fallout and structure gel leakage into their environment, is absolutely mad lad. So, when the evacuation order for Tau comes, the staff attempts to make it to the Climber, an elevator cage that will take them out of the abyss. But, the WOW drives the structure gel-infused wildlife to attack the group preventing them from leaving. A woman named Julia Dahl, who seems to really personify the human resources departments I'm sure we've all experienced, decides that another evacuation shouldn't be tried and reports to the other stations that the Tau evacuation was a complete failure. Walking HR department Julia Dahl had gone down the climber into the abyss 
to help the evacuees out of the abyss. When they didn't arrive, she took a walk, and walking HR department Julia Dahl found the body of one of the Tau employees, torn in half by a deep-sea creature. After hearing some of the Tau evacuees being attacked over a radio, walking HR department Julia Dahl fled back to the climber and deemed Tau a lost cause. One of the evacuees was essentially the father of the warden unit, a man named Johann Ross. Johann Ross made it back to Tau after the failed evacuation, got in contact with walking HR department Julia Dahl, and let her know that there were still people down there and he continued his work on the WOW. Walking HR Department Julia Dahl deemed that the best decision would be for Johann Ross to just keep working down there, and the survivors at Tau were abandoned in the abyss. For three months, the survivors at Tau in the abyss were left to scourge for food, with no contact with the other stations above the abyss. Suicidal food runs were made between station buildings. One of them, even climbed a tether to make it to the surface, to die under the sun like a human being. She had a brief time of normalcy, paradise really, with a small shack, some books, and a bottle of whiskey under the toxic sky of Earth. Not a bad way to go, really. Good on her. By Christmas of 2103, the ARC project was ready to finalize. It was decided that the ARC needed to get off Earth via a space gun at the Omega station in the abyss. The Omega Space Gun was an alternative to planet-side launch pads. It used electromagnetics of a massive barrel to more safely launch payloads into space. The ARC project team decided to take the ARC to the Omega Space Gun and launch the ARC into space doesn't seem like the worst of ideas. And this is a mission, a goal, something to keep them busy, something to help themselves with, a way to save humanity in their minds. The Ark is their future. So, the team descends into the abyss, and imagine their surprise when they get down there and discover that there are survivors from the failed Tau evacuation. And the survivors are in the process of starving. The Ark team makes it to the Omega space gun in the station called Phi. There, a fight ensues between Catherine and another team member named Ian Peterson, who is rethinking the whole space launch thing. Ian Peterson is afraid that the launch won't work, that the Ark will be destroyed, and that they should postpone the event and rethink their approach, or just keep the Ark with them. Catherine absolutely opposes this. This is the moment she has been working tirelessly towards for months now. This is the future of mankind, and she refuses to allow them to stop the launch. Ian, in response to Catherine's opposition, hits her over the head with a tool, killing the small woman. The ARC team abandons the launch, calling it a postponement, and they leave Catherine's corpse in the launch room. The Climber the elevator that takes people out of the abyss back to the station Omicron was scheduled to pick up the ARC team the day of the launch. The ARC team decided to stay in Tau to figure out what to do about the launch. In their place, the father of the WOW, Johann Ross, and another survivor of Tau went to the climber. On the way there, Johann Ross is attacked by a WOW-infused wildlife and tells his companion that he must get the message to walking HR department Julia Dahl that the WOW is out of control, and that Mark Serang will know what to do about it if Johann Ross should die before he can reach Omicron. The issue being with that, well, 
Mark Sering, killed himself a few months prior to this. Sering was the one that believed in continuity. After he was scanned by Catherine Chun, he immediately killed himself. Not that this would matter anyways. Johann Ross barely makes it to the climber, but his companion does not. Johann Ross dies on the climber, never able to deliver his message. And from this point, as if things weren't already bad enough, it really starts to fall apart. Johann Ross's corpse has to be retrieved manually, and Johann Ross's death really does something to the WOW. It begins experimental and over-the-top methods to revive him. The WOW manipulates electromagnetic fields in an effort to revive him using structure gel. This directly interferes with the black box chips inside all of the employees, causing extreme headaches and nausea of all the employees within Omicron. This did restore life to Johann Ross in some sense of the word. He began to mutate, become cancerous, slowly lost his mind, but he was able to communicate with other humans via their black box implants. One of them, a woman named Rally Herber, had enough of her senses to understand what Johann Ross was trying to tell them. The WOW needed to be destroyed. She leaps into actions, intent on going into the abyss to destroy the WOW as per Johann Ross's wishes. She creates a poisoned version of the structure gel, something that when injected into the WOW will kill it. But while she is suiting up, the WOW overloads every single black box at the Omicron station, and what does this do? Well, their heads pop like cherries. Those who can be salvaged are integrated into the WOW, kept alive by the WOW, and live on in an artificial reality created by the WOW. Remember Terry Akers, the guy who refused to leave Station Delta, the one who started going a little bonkers? Well, on January 15th of 2104, he changed his mind. He called up Station Theta and decided that he was ready to leave Delta. A group of divers surveying a nearby station go to pick Akers up to guide him to Theta. Akers decides, well, they need to be injected with structural gel to be closer to the WOW. Well, Akers kills them both and takes the Zeppelin transport to Station Theta. He arrives the following day. Now, this is happening as the Johann Ross black box head-popping situation is occurring at Omicron. So, Akers is taken into Theta, to the medical bay. And when he wakes up, he starts raining ruin on anyone he can find in the station. And at this point, there aren't a lot of people still living, maybe between 5 and 10 people. A small group manages to make it out of Theta, away from the rampaging Akers who at this point is a fully mutated, eyeless, insane, cancerous WOW ghoul. They flee for Omicron. It's the only place they can go, where just that same day, a plethora of heads were popped like cherries when the WOW overloaded their black boxes. When this small group makes it to Omicron, the protective gates of the station are down, indicating a quarantine lockdown, and they cannot get in. With no place left to go, one by one, this small group of survivors succumbs to the environment. Oh my goodness, we've done it. Remember Simon Jarrett from 2015, the fellow that passed away from his brain injury? Well, it's time to return to Simon's story. On May 5, 2104, Simon Jarrett's legacy brain scan was activated by the WOW. After all, the WOW is meant to preserve life. An available body 
that of Imogen Reed, is in the site Upsilon. Reed had been working on a way to stop the WOW, cutting off power production to Pathos 2. She suffocated in Upsilon in her diving suit. Simon's data was loaded into her body via a Cortex chip and held together with structure gel. When Simon awakes in 2104, he's oblivious as to where he is and how he got there. After all, to him, just a blink ago, he was in Ontario getting a brain scan in the year 2015. He sees his arms as his normal human arms. He doesn't distinguish between his perception of himself as a normal human male and the reality that he's in a woman's body inside a diving suit. Thankfully, he chances over an Omni-Tool, a sort of handheld computer that allows him to access the Pathos 2 computer systems, and then Simon comes in contact with none other than Catherine Chun. But remember, she died some five months ago in the Abyss, when Ian Peterson beat her over the head with a tool. But we know better than Simon. Simon thinks this is a woman in contact with him, but really this is a brain scan of Catherine Chun. And... She's a brain scan from before her journey into the abyss. So, this Catherine doesn't know her real self is dead. She doesn't know what happened with Acres. She doesn't know the wow is popping everyone's heads off like a cherry. She doesn't know that Imogen Reed cut off power and life support to all the stations. She doesn't know that everyone is either dead or integrated into the wow. Though, Catherine has extreme advantages over our boy Simon. After all, she's from this era. She knows what happened on Earth, she knows the state of Pathos II before her death, and she knows the names of people Simon finds along the way. Catherine is able to piece things together far easier than we, or rather, Simon can. So, as I said in the introduction, there are choices to be made as we venture through Pathos II, and now you have some of the advantages that Catherine had. Knowing what you do, what choices would you make? Would it differ from the first time you played Soma? Let's talk about some of these choices. Very early on, Simon comes across Carl Semken. Carl is still in Upsilon. He's still in that robot body, thinking that he's human and thinking that he needs medical help. But Carl is still connected to the extremely anemic power remaining at Upsilon. To continue on, the power that Carl is connected to must be rerouted. Carl must be shut down. We find that we can brute force it nearby at a console, which will cause Carl extreme pain and suffering. Or, we can take our time, find another route, and peacefully shut Carl down. He'll never know the difference. Now, the only choice here is how Carl is shut down. You can't leave him alive, but even if you could, would you? Carl has been trapped here for an entire year now. He'll never get up and leave this place. But inside, there's still some sort of consciousness, the mind of a man that was very much alive once. And when you speak to Carl, he's friendly and assertive. He doesn't understand that he's not him same self, even though his corpse is but a few dozen meters away. Is there any reason to feel guilt over ending Carl's existence? If you didn't find the peaceful route to shut Carl down, did his reaction, his pain, his minutes of suffering, did that bother you? Did it humanize Carl? Did you see him as more than metal and circuitry? I certainly did. The moment I heard Carl cry out in pain, I felt immense guilt for unknowingly harming him. I wanted to walk away from the situation entirely before hurting him again. 
but finding the peaceful method for shutting him down didn't give me any pause. I immediately shut Carl down to reroute the power, and I didn't feel guilty over it. He just went to sleep. And afterwards, I actually appreciated being able to do this. I thought, what would I want to happen to myself in that situation? Would I want to be left to linger on alone? Would I rather just go to sleep? Carl didn't see himself as anything other than human, so why would I? Why would you? It was the start of some very conflicting lines of logic and reasoning. Not long after Carl, we find Amy, his companion that was also attacked in Upsilon. But Amy didn't die like Carl did. The WoW integrated her into the computer system, mechanically keeping her alive. And Amy is in a far more tragic state than Carl, I would contend. She is fully human and aware that she has been hurt and she needs help. She begs us, recognizing us as a rogue robot, to not harm her. Then she asks us to go and get help for her. She wants to go home. And here we have another choice. Amy is connected through two lines into the WoW. We need some of her power supply. We can unplug one, that will be enough, and Amy will remain here in this state. Or we can unplug both of her lines, cutting off her life support, ending her life. At first, I didn't know that I could just unplug one of her lines. I unplugged them both. I killed Amy. I argued with myself that I would want that too. Her life was over, she just didn't realize it yet, and then it hit me. I'm playing God here. Simon never asked Amy what she wanted. He, we, just did it. What if Amy did want to remain like this? Shouldn't that have been her own choice to make? Shouldn't we have respected that choice? It didn't even cross Simon's mind. It didn't even cross my mind. I just unplugged the poor woman and went on my merry way. But we never get to ask Amy if she wants to stay connected. She says she's just scared that she needs help and that she wants to go home. So what would you do? Leave her there, knowing that there's no hope to her survival. Keep in mind, at least when we come across Amy, she's not living in some virtual reality utopia as other residents of Pathos 2 who are integrated into the WoW are. Was it right to make that choice for her when she was unable to make it herself? At what point, if ever, is it okay to play God or grant mercy or is mercy a farce? Catherine and Simon catch on that the Ark is still at the Tau station, down in the abyss. They talk about Catherine's original idea of launching it into space and decide that it's a great idea. Though Simon doesn't quite catch on when Catherine says that the people on the Ark are scans of people's brains, they're copies, not originals. Simon isn't from this era. This technology is foreign to him. He doesn't quite get it. Almost to the point of being idiotic along the way. But understand what a foreign, weird world this is to him. Understand that he too starts to cling to any kind of hope that he can find. Much the same as how the now-dead Pathos 2 survivors once did. Hope is one hell of a drug. And it can drive people to do completely nonsensical things, like killing yourself after a brain scan in hopes that you don't have to live in an underwater hellscape anymore. Hope drove Simon forward to launch the Ark to get his scan, and he put on his blinders to achieve it. Anything was worth doing if he could just get on the Ark, but it was a copy of himself. 
You might catch on to that early in Soma, but Simon sure doesn't. It's just watching someone take one step after another in delusional hope towards an end that will not be what they want it to be. The two arrive at Omicron, the station where the WOW popped people's heads like cherries when Rally Herber took measures to stop the WOW. Here also is the reanimated body of Johann Ross, who has been pumped full of structure gel and exposed to electromagnetic treatments from the WOW for months now. Ross speaks to Simon through his Cortex chip, telling him to kill the WOW, to poison it, to follow his orders. And knowing what we know about Johann Ross, we can sit back and realize that he's trying to help us. He's trying to guide us forward like he did with Rally Herber before the WOW killed her. But our biases and preconceived notions of a villain come into play here, because Johann Ross presents like a villain. He presents like someone who is a monstrosity that must be defied. It was at this point that I really began to question if killing the WoW was the right thing to do, because this weird demon robot man thing was being a creepy boy at me, and I didn't want to be told what to do. But still, we continue, seeing the consequences of WoW control over the station. Before departing from Omicron from the Abyss, Simon must change suits, which means he must change bodies. Imogen Reed's suit is not meant for the deep-sea pressure of the Abyss. Thankfully, Rally Herber's body is still there, inside her specialized diving suit, which Simon can use to traverse the Abyss. Simon jumps bodies here, only to be faced with another quandary. And another hint of what is really waiting for him at the Ark launch. Simon doesn't jump bodies, he's copied into Rally Herber's. Another Simon is still in Imogen Reed's body. The Simon that we were just playing as. Simon number two, I suppose you could say. And now we are Simon number three. And here's another choice. Leave this Simon to his fate. Trapped here alone in a monster-infested station at the bottom of the ocean or drain his battery. He'll just stay asleep. That's it. He won't have to face the torment of this reality, he won't be trapped here alone, and he won't be left to wander until the battery keeping him alive slowly, slowly drains. And here, I made a similar choice to that of Carl and Amy. I turned off Simon number two. But this time, things felt different. I felt emboldened. Like I had a right to make this choice because, well, Simon number two was me, after all. What would I want for myself? I would want to be turned off. I wouldn't want to be left to wander these desolate deep sea stations alone. So don't I have the right to make that choice? Well, hold on now. Now I'm separated from the moment and the choice, and now I think perhaps I was wrong. I was no longer Simon number two. I was Simon number three. Simon number two was his own person, so to speak. And now I think, hold on. These aren't people, these are robots, their data's their copies, what am I talking about? But aren't they human? Am I being so careless with something that is a life? It's different, it's alien to me as I sit here now, but Simon number two, he had memories and thoughts. He expressed deep emotion and desires. He was as human as any other protagonist I've ever controlled, 
What gives me the right to make that choice for him? I should have let him wake up and decide for himself. He could power himself down. What, what the hell was I doing? Was I so self-righteous to think that I could play God? Within Tao, down in the abyss, we find one more. One more choice. The last living human on Earth, as far as we know. A woman named Sarah Lindwall. Sarah is being kept alive by life support. There's no more food. She's emaciated and sickly. She's guarding the Ark. And Sarah asks us to kill her. Turn off her life support so that she can finally pass on. The Ark is with us. She doesn't need to see it through. She's ready to go. And f for me, this was absolutely not, not even a question. I turned off her life support. It was the easiest decision of the game and one that I was thankful for. She made a request. She gave consent. There was no playing God here. And we sat with Sarah as she slowly faded away and gave her company in the final moments of her life. It was really a beautiful scene. And unlike so many other decisions I'd made up to that point, I didn't regret it. I was thankful that I got to share that time with Sarah, that I got to help her along. Her work was done. She finally got to rest. Would you have done this, though? I realize my regaling of the experience may have tainted the opinion pool, but would you have done the same thing, or left Sarah to turn off her own life support, or just gave her no attention? All you needed in that room was the Ark. You could just take it and leave. You're under no obligation to do anything for this woman. Before launching the Ark, Johann Ross leads us to the mysterious site Alpha, where the brain of the WoW is. He begs us, then demands us, to destroy it, to kill it. Killing the WoW will destroy every single breathing thing in Pathos. All the humans that have been integrated into the WoW, remember, many of them are seeing fictional worlds. They're not experiencing the present. They live in an alternate reality created by the WoW for them. You've been led to believe that the WoW is, is the doom of all mankind. It will be the destruction of all, the ultimate enemy AI, but the world is already dead and gone. The surface of, is a firestorm of toxicity. Mankind is gone. What humanity does remain is down here with us. It's the brain scans on the Ark and the humans connected to the WoW. So what gives you the right to kill the WoW? To kill the fictional, possibly the paradise, of all the people who are connected to it. Do you feel okay making that choice for them? Because they don't know any better. I killed the WoW, thinking not of the humans connected to the WoW, or the robots that contained brain scans of humans that were still pattering about. I did it, thinking about the monsters that had been giving chase to me all, all the game. I wanted to kill them. I wanted to save something from them. But looking back, what was I trying to save? Myself? Those beings were far behind me at this point. Why did I need to kill them? Well, I can't undo it now. I killed the WoW. Catherine and Simon made it to the Omega Space Gun. They uploaded their copies onto the Ark and shot it out into space. And finally, with that hope gone and the mission accomplished, Simon has to face that... He doesn't get to be on the Ark, at least not this Simon. Simon number four does, though, his copy. This version of Catherine doesn't get to be on the Ark either. 
Catherine number three does, though. They lost the coin flip. They're stuck here at the bottom of the ocean in a literal abyss. And I killed the wow. Power begins to leave the facility. Simon and Catherine are left behind to face the suffocating black of a dead earth. So when you see Simon number four on the arc at the end, did you feel happy about how this had played out? Like this was a good ending because I sure didn't. And I hate it when stories bend over backwards to deliver a happy ending, especially in a horror game. And this ending was truly awful and befitting to the story. Watching Simon number four leave everything behind, including himself, live in a paradise in a fake world that will eventually end someday, because the arc can't go on forever. What's the end game here anyways? Aliens find it? Recreate mankind through cloning or something? What even is the damn point of it? Are these humans in this simulation? For half the game, I'd been struggling with that question. Are these copies and robots deserving of the consideration that I would give to a flesh and blood human being? So what makes us human? And I'm still struggling with it. I still think of Simon number three, left in consuming darkness on Earth. The Catherine left behind with him can just shut off. In fact, with the WoW gone, she will turn off and cease to exist. So Simon number three is, he's truly alone to wander until his battery slowly drains out. Or left to despair until he steadies himself and ends his life. <laughs>